Welcome, and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Women at Ropes Talk, a podcast series brought to you by the Women's Forum at Ropes and Gray. In this podcast, we spotlight extraordinary women who have had successful careers and interesting lives and are also making a positive impact in their workplaces and in their communities. We feature women attorneys at Ropes and Gray in conversation with prominent women clients, industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and others about their careers and what's led to their successes, the challenges they faced, and the hard-earned wisdom they've acquired. I'm Megan Baca, a partner at Ropes and Gray with a practice focusing on intellectual property and technology transactions. And I'm also co-head of the firm's Digital Health Initiative. I'm based in Silicon Valley. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Hannah Freeman, who's based in Boston. Hey, Hannah, can you introduce yourself and provide an overview of your practice for our listeners? Sure. Hi, Megan. Um, so my name is Hannah Freeman. I'm a partner in the Life Sciences Group in Boston, and my practice focuses on licensing and collaboration agreements um, for all types of life sciences companies from large to small. So who's the special guest you'll be interviewing on this episode today, and how did you start working together? Chris is the Senior Vice President and Deputy General Counsel at Sarepta. I started working with Chris several years ago when she joined Sarepta, although she has had worked with Rotes and Gray for a long time. But we've been working together closely since she's been at Sarepta in her role as Head of Transactions there. And you said you do a lot of licensing and collaboration work. I assume you've done that kind of work for them. But can you tell us just a little bit about the types of matters you've worked on with Chris? Um, so we've worked with Sarepta and with Chris on all types of license and collaboration agreements um, that for products across their portfolio. Most notably, we worked with Sarepta at the end of 2019 as they entered into a large collaboration with Roche for their lead DMD product, um, which was an over a billion dollar upfront transaction. So it was very transformative for Sarepta. Yeah, I definitely saw that one in the headlines. Well, congrats to them for that. What would you say is most interesting or noteworthy about Chris's career that our listeners are going to be excited to hear about? Sure. I think probably the most interesting thing about Chris's career is the way that she has seen the industry from all sides. She started in private practice and then has also worked on part of the IP legal team. Then she went to Harvard seen the academic side, and now is back in, in industry at Sarepta. So she has a really unique perspective um, from, from all different areas. Sounds great. So with that, I will turn it over to you and Chris for the interview. Morning, Chris. Could we start by having you introduce us to our listeners? Sure. Hey, Hannah. This is Chris Rothfuss. I am the Senior Vice President of Corporate Transactions and Deputy General Counsel at Sarepta Therapeutics. Sounds like you wear a lot of hats at Sarepta. Can you Tell us a little bit about Sarepta as a company and what you do there on a day-to-day. Sarepta is a biopharmaceutical company uh, focused primarily on rare diseases, um, neuromuscular rare diseases, Duchenne muscular dystrophy and limb girdle muscular dystrophy, um, amongst other indications. And while we have um, a few RNA products on the market directed to Duchenne, um, we are really looking forward to becoming a precision genetic medicine company. So our future really lays in gene therapies and potentially gene editing. I'm the legal lead for material transactions at the company. So more complex business development agreements, in-licensing, out-licensing, strategic partnerships, clinical development agreements, uh, and manufacturing and supply arrangements. I have a team um, of attorneys, and we work closely with outside counsel, including yourself. <laughs> and ha- when did you join Sarepta? 
gosh, it's been a little over two and a half years now. Great. I should also say, because you asked me about the, the various hats, I've recently been appointed Deputy General Counsel, which is really a nice opportunity to start um, broadening my wings into different aspects uh, of the business, um, which is exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about your career trajectory before you got to Sarepta? I know that you've spent a lot of time uh, both on in the private practice side and in academics. Um, but if you could just walk us through how you ended up at Sarepta. In my opinion, my career trajectory is a little unusual or at least a little different. And But it's really been um, a path that has led me to a number of steps along the way that were right for me, and uh, including the step that I'm standing on now, if you will. Um, I'm hopeful that this might be of interest to some of your listeners, including folks who are younger in their career um, as an object lesson in, your path needn't always be a straight one. It might be a straight one, and that, that can be um, admirable and just right for you, but if it if it wavers, that might be just right for you as well. My path is definitely a combination of intention, um, but also serendipity and opportunity, and I've been lucky to have opportunity and serendipitous opportunity, and I began my career as a litigator. Uh, which isn't at all what I do right now. Um, general civil litigation spent um, the better part of, I don't know, six, almost seven years uh, doing a broad range of um, trial work, alternative dispute work, and, um, and and all the other things that a litigator does at a private firm, private firm in Connecticut. And after... Uh, doing that for a while and enjoying it, enjoying the intellectual aspect of it more than the raw adversarialness of it. I decided that, you know, if you weren't a, if you weren't broadly, broadly adversarial, that maybe you shouldn't be a litigator. Um, and that's about the same time that I was thinking that for me personally, being in a private law firm was no longer the right place to be. So I started exploring in-house counsel opportunities, um, and landed a role at, at a small biotech in Massachusetts as a corporate counsel. Um, and on paper, it wasn't a job that I was all qualified for. Um, so this was one of those moments of serendipity. Uh, the woman who had recently been appointed general counsel um, at this company, which was used to be called Controlled Delivery Systems for One Public, um, was a woman you know, Lori Friedman, um, um, and she had recently been appointed general counsel and met me. I don't, I've never learned what inspired her to even look at my resume, um, <laughs> but, but once we met in person, um, she told me after the fact that she knew that I'd be able to figure the job out and more importantly that we would work well. And so she gave me the opportunity, which was really a, a game changer for me professionally. Um, and you know, that moment is, is seared in my um, memory as one of the most important moments professionally because um, someone took a chance on me. Right. And, and evaluated me for more than was in the four corners of my resume um, and I've tried, as I've grown in my career, to to remember that lesson, to remember that, um, yeah, you you need to evaluate um, someone's full potential 
in deciding whether you're going to hire them or work with them or give them an opportunity. So I joined the company while there, learned uh, an awful lot about intellectual property, patents, intellectual property-based transactions. Um, I did that with, um, but through a close partnership with, again, with your firm, Hannah Robson Gray. Um, and by the time that stint was over, which was a little over four years, I was well positioned to do what I do now, um, which is focus on intellectual property-based material transactions. And so the next step was another unusual one, which was going to Harvard. Um, And at that point in my career, I knew what was important to me was working somewhere where I truly believed in the mission and the organization was doing work that felt good. Um, And then I had the opportunity to work with people that I enjoyed um, personally and professionally. Um, So it was more more about the place. I was interested in working at Harvard University and the Office of Technology Development, and it just so happens I had the skill set to do so. And so I entered academic life um, doing IP-based licenses and sponsored research for the most part for a long time, um, for almost eight years. Uh, And it was a fabulous place to work, Um, but kind of hit a ceiling with what I could accomplish within that organization, but liked being at Harvard um, quite a bit, and then took a really strange next step in my career, um, which was decided that as I was also growing older as a professional, realized I liked leading a team um, and being in a leadership position. And so I applied to be the executive director of a research institute within Harvard which had nothing to do with anything I had done um, professionally to that point in life. I distinctly remember my father saying, you're not going to use your lawyer skills anymore. And my response to him was, I'm going to use all of my lawyer skills every day. Um, Because law school uniquely positions us to do many things in life. Um, You know, and to resolve disputes, to mediate, to think strategically, to think analytically. And in fact, I applied all of those skills immediately and consistently for a couple of years um, in that in that position. It, it allowed it was interesting, and I eventually circled back to law, obviously, but I don't regret um, having spread my wings in that way. And so then something happened. I actually took a sabbatical from Harvard. Um, for three months, seemed like a longer time, but it was just three months to um, undertake a, a charitable project that I started, which entailed riding my bike across the country. Um, founded a, a, a charitable event, did that, came back to Harvard, um, and spent a little bit of time there um, with both Harvard and I knowing that I was looking for the right next position. And then another moment of serendipity and opportunity came along um, that brought me to Sarepta, which is the end of the story, I guess. And that was the general counsel at Sarepta kind of did the the same thing Laurie had done many years ago. At that point, I had been in academia for 13 plus years and um, trying to get back into industry. Folks were looking at my resume saying, you're in a tech transfer licensing office, which was vastly understating what I had done at Harvard. But 
weren't really thinking that I was well suited for industry <laughs> anymore, I guess. Um, and, and Ty met me and I suppose knew better, um, and gave me the opportunity I have now. And, uh, it's, it's been a fantastic one in which I flourished. Excellent. It sounds like quite an interesting path along the way. Um, I definitely want to touch on the bike ride, not only because I'm an avid cyclist, but because I suspect that the things that you learned while taking that sabbatical have been instrumental in your work at Sarepta and in building your career from there. Before we get there, I do want to just ask a couple questions following up on a theme that you mentioned um, with relationships, because as we know, Mm -hmm. so many of our careers are built on the relationships uh, even more than what you're doing or where you're doing it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you build and maintain the relationships you touched on, the relationship with Lori and with Ty, but as you think about traveling through your career path, how have you stayed in touch with people and maintained and built those relationships historically, and how have you done it in the time of COVID when everyone is remote? To begin with, you're right. I'm a firm believer in bringing your full and authentic self um, to your job and the relationships in your job and found that being mindful of bringing your full self to the table and, and seeking to understand and get to know who you're working with or perhaps sitting across the table from um, and being open-minded and respectful and human, if you will, really can go a long way in the most complicated and complex situations. Um, Some of the most satisfying experiences I've had negotiating difficult deals has been where at the end of the deal, both sides lift their head and realize they respect and admire um, each other. So, uh, and then the obvious advantages of a a network and stay, you know, um, connecting with and staying in touch with um, the people you work with. So, you know, Lori, um, in addition to giving me that tremendous break in my career, also played a hand 14 years later in helping me find Sarepta um, when I put it out to the world that I was looking um, looking for an opportunity. She connected me with the right legal recruiter who knew that I'd be the right match for Ty. Um, so that's that's all about relationships and less about what's on on your resume, right? Your resume matters, but I've found that relationships and connections and who you are as a person matter more. How do you stay in touch, you know, historically and, and with in COVID, how have you maintained that network? I find, and I, I hear other people say, we seem to have all found more time in the day. And that, that's a two-edged sword, right? But, um, you know, that more time in the day leaves more time for emailing and texting and LinkedIn and all of those ways that make it easy to stay in touch with your network these days as opposed to let's grab a coffee or lunch. So I guess, you know, the, probably the, the best bottom line answer in COVID or not in COVID is just being intentional about it. It's, it's easy to let the days go by and forget that you have to be intentionally, have to be proactive about nurturing relationships. Mm-hmm. And just a quick touch, even if it's over text, you make a good point that a quick touch point is a good way to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you and I some days can't find time to get on the phone, but even in exchange of messages, you know, we can accomplish the what we need to get done, but also have, you know, a quick check in and make sure that uh, that things are going well. So I've appreciated your ability to get in touch and be responsive quickly. Uh, likewise. <laughs> and, and then following up on the relationships, 
um, with in terms of mentoring, you know, you mentioned some mentors that you've had as you've transitioned into a more senior role in your career. How have you thought about mentoring um, people on your team? You've been a tremendous mentor to me. I've learned a lot from working with you, and I suspect that there are people on your team that you've worked with, both at Sarepta and I know you've worked with at Harvard. How have you gone about mentoring your team members? So mentoring's interesting. First of all, it's a two-way street, right? Like you just said something that you feel like I've mentored you. I feel equally um, the same in reverse. I've worked with you and your team, um, your associates, um, for a couple of years now. And sure, I'm the putative legal lead at the table when we're negotiating, but I have learned enormous amounts from you and from everyone on your team, even the most junior associates. As we grow older in our careers, it's not about conveying the so-called vast wisdom we've learned upon others, but always being receiving. That's what keeps it interesting. But in the, the role of mentor, um, I think it's important and necessary to mentor um, more junior people in particular more junior women in their careers. But I will also admit to you that I I find it not only rewarding, but intimidating. Mentoring and coaching isn't about dictating or telling. It's about helping your mentee figure out their own path. My inner nature is to be a fixer. And mentoring isn't about fixing, isn't about telling, isn't about instructing. So um, I, I find it a little intimidating because I have to constantly be working on it um, and hoping that the other person is getting something out of it. But I, I felt important to at least say that I find it intimidating, but equally rewarding intimidating because um, I suspect there might be others out there who are apprehensive or shy away from mentoring because of that feeling. And I don't think it's uncommon. Right. The desire to help, but not knowing how. And, and one thing that also comes up is, you know, the formal mentoring versus an informal mentoring program and figuring out which is best. That's something that we talk a lot about as well. And I think what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with, is that mentoring comes in all shapes and sizes and flavors, and it goes, you know, it goes both directions. Um, and I think being open to understanding that you can learn from, you know, from everyone, and it's not just a one-way street. I certainly have learned a lot from the people that I, you know, maybe I was quote unquote mentoring and were much more junior than I have, but keeping an open mind and knowing that as we go along in our careers, we can learn from everyone that we interact with. Absolutely. So let's talk about your bike ride, because I know that um, this is something that had an enormous impact on your career and has been very important to you. I think it would be really interesting for the listeners to see how you decided to do this, how it you know, benefited your career after you came back. So can you tell me a little bit more about the ride, you know, how you did it, how you chose the the cause, um, and give us just, you know, a, a little bit of a, a sense of when you say you rode your bike across the country, what did that mean? The name of the ride, we called it the real ride. And it, it was in 2017, so it was only a couple of years ago. It was myself and four other people, a team of five. Um, I put together the team, and we rode from Seattle to Boston on gravel roads and trails. And so it was a 5,000 mile ride, um, 4,882 miles to be exact. <laughs> it took us 82 days 
which is why I needed a three-month sabbatical. We camped along the way. Um, we, we thought we would self-support, carry everything we needed across the country, and then we realized that was as insane as this was, that made it even more insane. <laughs> so, uh, so we suckered a uh, family member or two into um, coming along in a van. So we would break camp in the morning, leave the van, and then we'd be on our own during the day um, and reconvene in the evening to camp. Um, it was in support of um, a local school in Boston called Boston Day and Evening Academy, which is, in, in my opinion, an exceptional institution, unheralded institution that is part of the Boston public school system, but also Horace Mann Charter School. Um, it focuses specifically on Boston student population that's off track, generally a little older, um, and reengages them in, in their education through a combination of competency-based uh, learning and, importantly, um, social and emotional learning. So when I was looking for the cause, um, I was particularly interested in organizations that were teaching young people social and emotional competencies, the soft skills. Um, that's, uh, soft skills obviously play into relationships, and I have found over my career that soft skills um, – including dispute resolution, importantly, uh, have been the key in, in my career to uh, success. And I think it was my, it was the thought I had was so much going on in the world. If more young people at a younger age learned social and emotional competencies, um, the world would be a better place. And then I found that this particular school BDA was doing exactly that. So I wanted to do something to support them. Turns out they have a network of sister schools across the country. So we, the, the riding team, stopped at five schools, including BDA, along the way and, and did promotional events to raise a modest amount of money and some awareness for for this particular cause. So that's, that's what it was. Um, but it, it's the why did I do it is a is a bigger, more complicated story. I was fortunate enough to work at a Harvard institution that you know where I had established a personal track record and I had relationships with the administration and they had faith in me that that I could go away and come back and do this. Um, uh, but you know, away from everything else in life too, um, and and planned it for a year and a half and an immense logistical undertaking um, to pull this off. Then a few years before we did the ride uh, in 2014, my family went through um, a string of really bad things. I lost um, both of my parents and my uncle uh, in the span of five months, um, two unexpectedly. My uncle was killed by a drunk driver and my father died unexpectedly two weeks later, all a couple months after my mom had passed away from cancer. I used to say to people, it's one of those moments in life where you step back and question what you're doing in life and whether your life has enough meaning. But that that explanation actually gives it too much intention. I think what was really what really happened at the time was my life was so upside down that I needed to do something that kind of made me feel like myself. And like you, Hannah, I'm a lifelong athlete and a bike rider. And so riding my bike seemed like probably an escape if I'm being honest. Um, 
so I got this thought that I wanted to ride across the country and at least shortly after that got the thought that it, maybe I should make it about something more than myself. Um, and then got onto the thought of the social emotional learning of BDA. So that's why I did it. Um, and that's what we did. Um, and it's, it, it's funny. We were writing in support of this school and its efforts in social and emotional learning. And, the the ride turned out to be a master class in social and emotional learning. <laughs> <laughs> it Saved was, five um, people for three months. That's exactly right. Um, we were a very well-equipped team to do this. All of us had very serious athletic backgrounds um, and, and experience with riding, but nothing prepares you for riding um, through deserts and across the Rockies and on dirt roads, um, 75 to hundred miles a day for 82 straight days. Um, and so, and then through heat waves and wildfires and all sorts of craziness. And then on the flip side of all of that duress, it was equally magnificent and soul affirming and, a, you know, an exceptional experience that one you know, can't expect to have in life. And, but in that cauldron, you put five people, you put a team and you have your moments or you have a lot of moments. And what I found out, um, shortly getting into the ride was they all turned to look to me. This was my idea. I was the leader. Um, and so to the extent I thought I knew something about leadership, <laughs> I learned a lot more in 82 days. And I think the thing I'm proudest about is that for all of us is that we all finished uninjured as a team, still getting along, um, all marked positively for the rest of our lives by this experience. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment. One thing you said earlier was how much you liked leading a team and how over the course of your career trajectory, how that has become something that you know is a, a goal and a, a piece of your career path. Um, I've certainly found that the things that I do outside of work are sometimes the things that have the biggest impact on my you know, professional conduct and how I go about my career. How did the ride and leading the ride impact your career and what skills did you build from the ride that you were able to then take on as you moved into the next phase of your career and moving from Harvard to Sarepta? Being part of a team and teamwork um, and even leadership has has been part of the mix for me for a long time in part because of the experience of athletics. Um, you know, I was a high school and college athlete as well. Um, but the, the cauldron of, of being the leader of a small team, um, in this exceptional circumstance of this ride really honed some of those skills and in a way that I didn't appreciate while we were going through it. While we're going through it, it sort of felt like survival mode um, at times. And after the fact, I've reflected quite a bit and thought, I think I did an okay job. You know, I got us across, but I could have done a lot better. And I understand how and why now. And so, for example, not just giving lip service, but really, truly, deeply appreciating each of your team members' skills, capabilities, personal experience where they are, what they're bringing to the table, and then working with that, not 
superimposing your expectations or your story or your perspective on what a person might be going through or capable of in a moment. Um, I think I've stumbled through that adequately on the ride, and I've thought about that intentionally um, in professional and other team situations since. Situational leadership, sizing up the member of your team or your direct report and understanding what they've got in terms of skills and um, motivation and working with that. You've had a very impressive career that, as you said, you know, has not been linear at all, including having the confidence and the courage to take a pause and you know go on the bike ride, which was incredibly important to you. And it sounds like during the ride, you actually in some ways learn more than you ever would staying at one particular job or another. Looking back, knowing what you know now, because of course hindsight is always twenty twenty. What advice mm-hmm. would you offer younger women as they enter their legal career in the first few years and as they progress? First of all, recognize that law school and the, the tools that we learn in law school and then the tools we continue to receive and hone in our career are exceptionally versatile, really poise you to do quite anything you want and do it well. Um, and so as you start off on your career, keep your mind open. Understand that opportunities or ways of utilizing your degree or ways of being a lawyer are really manifold. Um, and some of them you might not even foresee. Um, opportunities that you may not have contemplated may pop up and be open-minded to evolution if that's right for you. Like evolution was right for me and has led me to a number of interesting places for me. Um, Alternatively, someone else may start at the beginning and know exactly where they want to be and head on a linear path with dogged determination. And that could be exactly the right path for them. Um, So I guess the the advice is that be flexible, be open-minded, be intentional, but be open to serendipity and opportunity as well. Well, I think that's an excellent place for us to end. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us all. Uh, I've always found, you know, your career and the things that I've learned from you to be incredibly valuable, and I suspect that everyone listening to this will as well. Thanks, Hannah, and I'm looking forward to that bike ride you've promised me. Hannah and Chris, thank you both. That was a wonderful discussion, and always thanks to our listeners. For more information about Ropes and Gray's Women's Forum and our women attorneys, please visit ropesgray.com slash women. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.